This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Clyde Snow and Sessions, based in Salt Lake City with offices in Oregon and California. For over 65 years, Clyde Snow has represented clients throughout the West. Clyde Snow, serious about solutions. Hello, and welcome to Ripple Effect, a podcast putting water into context. I'm Emily Lewis, your host, and I'm a water attorney here in Salt Lake City, Utah, practicing creative solutions to today's and tomorrow's water problems. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everybody. We have a very special ripple effect for this week. So this is an excerpt from a podcast that I recorded a couple weeks ago with Trace Blackmore. And this is when I was a guest on his Scaling Up H2O podcast. And Trace is a fantastic podcaster. He focuses generally in the utility world and kind of the water treatment space. But we had a really fun, free-ranging discussion about kind of all things water, what we've got going on in Utah, kind of some things that are interesting to his particular audience base. And so we really think that you are going to like this particular podcast with Trace. So we're really excited to include and welcome Trace into the Ripple Effect family, and we really hope you enjoy this conversation. We'll be back next week with some wonderful Utah-focused items, and again, a really fun slate of podcasts coming into the next year. Thank you so much. Here's our interview. My lab partner today is Emily Lewis, director and shareholder at the law firm of Clyde Snow and Sessions, and she acts as the co-chair of the Natural Resources and Water Law Practice Group. Welcome, Emily. Well, I'm very excited to be here and join you for this conversation. I am excited to have you too, and I didn't mention this in your intro, but also fellow podcaster. Fellow podcaster, we are self-masochists here with our talking talking <laughs> habits. <laughs> Who, who would ever want to go start a podcast? What's wrong with us? Especially about water. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about yours. Uh, what is your podcast and uh, where can you find it? Great. So um, as you mentioned in the introduction, I am a water law attorney practicing here in the state of Utah. And we just have so many fascinating issues happening here in Utah and the West. And so in 2020, I thought it'd be a great idea to just kind of do a podcast to interview, you know, people I run into in my practice on a daily basis, folks I follow on LinkedIn, you know, interesting projects that are occurring in the state. And so we're going on our third year. The podcast is called Ripple Effect, and we are about to round out our 150th episode or so. Congratulations. Yeah, we've been pretty busy. So with that, you are a water attorney. I know for a fact people are tuning in and they are thinking, I didn't even know there were water attorneys. So what does a water attorney do and what's a day in your life like? Yes, uh, we are a special breed. <laughs> um, and I actually went to law school wanting to do water law. So that is something that I knew I wanted to do. My history is that I'm from Wyoming. We're a very active outdoorsy state. And I did a lot of raft guiding in my 20s. And just kind of being on the river and seeing, you know, the day-to-day -day changes in a river, depending on which river I was on, depending on whether it was early season, depending on if it was a dam-controlled river, and just literally tasting the difference in water, seeing our boats float up and down depending on the hour, I just thought was really, really interesting. And so I actually went to uh, law school here at the SJ Quinney College of Law at, here in Salt Lake City at the University of Utah to study water law. 
And so a water attorney, um, it's a great field. If you are someone who's intellectually curious, who likes to solve hard problems, being a water attorney is a great position to do because we get to basically have our fingers in everything interesting, (laughs) which I like. So on a day-to-day basis, you know, our clients range from kind of independent water users. So I deal with individuals who are honestly just looking to drill a well on a property to we represent one of the largest wholesalers of water in the state of Utah. The uh, Central Utah Water Conservancy District is a client of ours. Obviously, I'm speaking today on my own personal behalf and not any of my clients. And, you know, we deal with transbasin diversions from the Colorado River Basin into the Great Salt Lake. We represent very large agricultural interests. So we deal with a lot with um, more recently assisting with kind of ag optimization projects, having agriculture become more efficient, and then kind of unique to our practice and something that um, I, I'm very passionate about is we've been working a lot with the state of Utah through various kind of contractor projects, working on kind of broader water policy. And so we've got a really great Great Salt Lake Integrated Basin Plan that deals with water policy for the Great Salt Lake coming out. And just this week, we released our website which is the culmination of a three-year effort developing water marketing strategies for the state of Utah. And so we really have a very broad base of what we do. I'm curious, you went to law school knowing you wanted to specialize in water. Was that a specialty in law school or did you have to create that after you graduated? So the University of Utah and the S.J. Quinney College of Law have what's called an environmental certificate. So typically a law degree is kind of a general practice degree like you would have if you were kind of just like a a general practitioner, like a doctor. And then, you you know, later people go on and specialize in orthopedics or whatever. You know, a law degree is kind of supposed to be a kind of a generalized education in law. And then once you move into practice, you kind of specialize in tax or family or whatever. The S.J. Quinney College of Law is a little bit different in that they are one of the few institutions in the country that offer a specialized environmental law certificate. And so you kind of can take a a heavier caseload in environmental laws like the Clean Air Act or Clean Water Act, natural resource law, uh, mining law, water law. And so I received the certificate through our law school program and then ended up specializing in water uh, kind of in my practice as I moved into actually practicing law. And you are also a professor. Is that what you're teaching your students? I am. I'm a busy professor. I have to tell you, I kind of feel bad for my students this semester. (laughs) But I actually love teaching and, and water is just like such a great course to teach because it's so visual. You know, we are on the state engineer's website every day looking at water rights. We did a fantastic field trip a couple weeks ago where we went and spent all day looking at one of our clients' uh, irrigation canal company systems, and they're installing a $17 million efficiency program to do automated gates. And so it's really a fun, practical course to teach because you can go out and touch the things and see the maps and talk to the people um, instead of that, like, esoteric tax stuff or torts. So if we had a syllabus in front of us, what would be some of the things on that? So the course is kind of divided into two halves. Um, the first half is really kind of, you know, I do one day on uh, riparian rights, which is uh, the doctrine that's primarily practiced on the East Coast. And I'm based in Utah. And so, you know, that's not something I do on a day-to-day basis. So it's kind of more of just a, you know overview of the general principles 
And then we really do spend a good six weeks talking about the the components of the prior appropriation doctrine and kind of how that developed here in the West. And we talk a lot about the history of the West and how, you know, water law in the West really is a reflection of the westward migration, of the conditions that people found. It's a combination of, you know, how do we resolve conflict, you know, the you know, the prior part of the prior appropriation, you know, we talk about first in time, first in right, you know, that was a way to resolve conflict on little tiny streams between miners. You know, if you had a, you know, a miner come out, you know, first, you know, you had to figure out a way for them to claim their water so that they could defend against, you know, later comers in the stream. We also talk a lot about the migration of Western settlement, you know, the wagon trains that came out and how those ended up developing into, you know, communal water water companies and how they shared water amongst all the settlers. And so we really do kind of take like a very historical basis because at the end of the day, you know, the doctrine of prior appropriation is built around this concept of beneficial use. You know, water rights are designed to fulfill a very specific use at a very specific place for a very specific stream. And, you know, once you kind of understand that, you know, then you can kind of see how the doctrine was built, but more importantly, how it was built in a way that is flexible to adapt and amend to kind of today's conditions. Um, you know, water law gets kind of this bad rap of being this antiquated, hard to work in thing, but in all actuality, it's very straightforward. I mean, it is a prospective way to resolve shortage. And once you know that, then you can contract with people about different arrangements. You know the value of water rights. You know what's going to happen. You know, it really adds certainty to the discussion. So you can kind of create some creative ways to deal with some of the issues that we're dealing with today that they never would have thought of 150 years ago. So this podcast serves the industrial water treatment community. How are you working with them in your day-to-day? So we do represent several municipalities, you know, that have water treatment facilities. And so most of our work for them is kind of more in the terms of water rights portfolio management. You know, do you have the right amount of water rights? Uh, You know, what, from what sources are they coming from? Are they coming from ground? Are they coming from surface? Are they coming from, you know, contracts with large wholesalers? Um, And so that's kind of one way we deal with them. Here in the state of Utah, we've had some very, very robust discussions about reuse recently. And so how, how do we deal with kind of like reuse? That's something that we've been working with our clients a bit on. But also another aspect of water, and especially from the policy perspective, you know, is revenue. You know, how do our clients make money so that they can build another treatment plant or so that they can do a pipeline installation? And so, you know, I'm less involved in the day-to-day of, you know, how a treatment plant is built or operated, but kind of more on the back end of what is the water going into the plant? What is the water coming out? And then how do we make sure that that is a, you know, economically viable operation for one of our clients? We had somebody on the podcast not too terribly long ago, and they were talking about how we could just go out, drill down so many feet, and we can find water. But as we continue to pull water out of the ground, it's not always going to be there. So more and more facilities are trying to reuse as much water as they can. And eventually, people are going to start drilling wells, and that water's not going to be there. I'm curious, from a law standpoint... What do you think that landscape is going to look like? 
I'm so glad you mentioned that because as you said that, I'm wondering what state your guest was in. <laughs> uh, because our, our groundwater laws are, are very, very different. And actually, you know, if you're, if you're, listeners are interested, the New York Times is presently doing a very, very good interactive series of stories on groundwater. And the one that came out last week was just about the different rules and laws that apply to groundwater across the West, because they are very different. And so here in the state of Utah, we've regulated our groundwater as early as 1936. So, you know, you had to get a, a, you know, if you wanted to drop a well, you needed a permit from the state as early as 1936 to get groundwater. And, you know, and, and oftentimes earlier than that, we recognize diligence claims for underground uses. But in contrast, you know, California didn't adopt their Sustainable Groundwater Management Act until 2014 and didn't really become effective on the ground until 2016. So, I mean, that is, you know, almost 100 years difference in groundwater law. And so realistically, the ability to just drop a well and get more water is more and more limited. And physically, the water is not there. And then legally, uh, the challenges are, you know, it's much more of a heavily regulated space these days. I'm sure there are some people listening and they get frightened when they hear an attorney, especially in the water sector. So what's a common misconception that we can clear up about what you do? Yeah, I can say this very sincerely is that, um, you know, I'm an advocate of this particular role. Um, You know, I teach because I like being with the students. You know, I also really like being with kind of like up and coming minds who want to be thinking about this stuff. And, And I can say this with a very much of a straight face is that the water law bar here in the state of Utah, you know, I don't work in many other states, even though I do have a lot of interactions with attorneys in other states, is very different than other kinds of law. You know, whereas you might have like a divorce litigation where it's a sum game, you know, one one person moves a check in one column to the other column. With water, everyone loses or everybody wins. You know, like there really can't be winners and losers in water because that means that we have failed as a society to, you know, properly steward and manage this resource that is for everybody. And so it's an exceptionally collaborative area of law. You know, we spend a lot of our time in working groups. I mean, just yesterday I was at the Utah Water Task Force, which is a an an appointed body of 14 individuals who come from different stakeholder groups, you know, DEQ, municipal providers, you know, water rights. And then typically we have about 100 people attend these meetings that are just public members of the public or members of other groups. And we literally sit together and vet administrative rules as a group. I mean, like line by line. It is very boring, but also thrilling at the same time. And so, um, you know, I think one of the misconceptions is when you put lawyer next to anything is that it automatically indicates that something's adversarial. But with water, at, at least here in the state of Utah, you know, we really try to work together to find solutions to make our very scarce resource go as far as it can with as little conflict as possible. Because, you know, we're all busy we all have limited resources, and we realize that we really got to spend our time doing things that are pragmatic and not, you know, fighting. When we treat water, there's always discharge, there's always runoff. And we have to make sure in some cases we have certain permits and things that we are familiar with in our world. But I'm curious, what are some things maybe we need to get familiar with in the legal world that you're familiar with? 
Yeah. And to be really fair, my practice does less and less on the water quality aspect. So I do very few UDP PDS permits. I don't do a lot of stormwater permits. I'm more on kind of the quantity side, you know, the water rights side, the water management side. But I do think that one thing that, you know, that's come up in our practice, but honestly, more of my conversations through the podcast, my podcast ripple effect, because I choose people I think are interesting and I want to know what they have to say, is that, you know, really this concept of kind of one water is really permeating everywhere. You know, how, how do we really, you know, make our infrastructure work for the best so that it's really looking at like a circular water economy? You know, we have discharge, but is there a way that we can do upstream infrastructure so that we have less stormwater at the end. That I have I've seen a lot of conversations about that. You know, I had a, a, a podcast interview with a gentleman named Kevin Mercer who does Rain Barrel. Not exactly remembering the name of his entity, but basically it's, you know, on-site distribution of water for storm that basically does like, you know, rain barrel to, you know, little tiny shallow well to put, put the water back into the system at its local point instead of having to run into the gutter and then run into a stormwater system. And so I am seeing a lot of movement of kind of this distributed infrastructure concept of, you know, how do we take small bites everywhere to make sure that, you know, the water that actually goes through our treatment systems is one, you know, not as contaminated as it possibly could be, and two, you know, not overwhelming the system because, you know, we are seeing these disruptive events where, you know, instead of the slow spring trickle, we're getting the huge spring deluge and the huge fall deluge. And so, you know, our built concrete gray infrastructure is is not always built to accommodate those kind of new conditions. There's a show on the Discovery Channel, and its name is escaping me right now, but it's the gold miners up in Alaska, uh, and, uh-huh. and, and they're, they're taking water from the river, and of course, they're using the water to wash all the rock and all the dirt to find the gold, and then they're putting that water back into whatever source that it is, and I think there is a settling pond, but when I watch that, I think of all the things they should be doing as an industrial water treater to make sure that safe downstream as an attorney, what do you think of when you see something like that? I hope they have their permitting in order. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I see something like that. I mean, a mining operation in Alaska like that, that, that's a pretty heavy intensive use of the resource. So I imagine, you know, they'd have to be working with the Forest Service or, you know, whomever their permitting entity is to make sure they're not, you know, releasing too much muck into the river to make it turbid. And, you know, those are some pretty, you know, some pretty heavily regulated uh, activities. Who knows what actually happens on the TV show, but it should be heavily regulated. More when I kind of see things like that, I think maybe a more accessible, you know, uh, uh, example that I'm thinking of is that, you know, just here in a city, you have places and you're listeners probably really, you know, relate to this, you know, you you know, you have different kinds of contributors to a municipal treatment system. You know, you've got regular homes, I've got like pretty regular use, but then you have, you know, industry like a brewery that has like a really, you know, high uh, total dissolved solid or, you know, they've got really kind of a larger impact on, you know, water treatment. And so one of the most interesting conversations I've had in the last couple of years on the podcast that, that I host is one with uh, AquaCycle, where they do these really cool kind of on-site 
turnkey pre-treatment systems. And so you could like, if you were a brewery or some other, you know, you know, if you're like a paper mill, I don't, I mean, that seems very large. I don't know exactly what extent they could have, but if you had a, an entity that really did, um, had a higher percentage of treatment needs, you could do an on-site kind of pre-treatment, so-called, you know, rinse, quote unquote, before the water actually got released to, you know, the regular municipal system. And so I think that, you know, there's all these kind of cool ways that we can, you know, integrate these systems to be a little bit more flexible and resilient to kind of what our actual needs are. And, you know, this one size fits all system, I think is probably going to be kind of a model of the past. And I think the future is going to look really different. We have several guests on this show and we talk about how we can maximize the water in our customer locations, nanofiltration, ultrafiltration, reverse osmosis, but we've never had that discussion around law and what that landscape looks like. Can you help us out with that? Yeah, I think it really depends on where your listeners are. So in the East Coast, while there is, you know, uh, you know, definitely drought in the East Coast now. I mean, I just heard, read an article this morning about, you know, fires in Appalachia. You know, we've got the Mississippi River with the, you know, encroaching salt plume because of drought in the Mississippi. I mean, drought really is a, a thing in the East, but typically, you know, Eastern and Western water issues are a little bit different, you know, and so on the East Coast, you know, I don't really work there. So I can't really speak to, you know, water supply. But I think here in the West, you know, the water rights side of things is that, you know, we are in an acute crisis when it comes to water right now. You know, Arizona, Utah, parts of Colorado, you know, Nevada, we really do not have very much water and we have absolutely ballooning populations and ballooning needs. You know, one of the things that I think is really interesting here is that we in the state of Utah have had several requests for data centers, you know, very large data centers, because we have a lot of public land that's closely located to big transmission lines, which is kind of one of the big components. But one data center that uses water is the equivalent of 10,000 homes. And so we're really having to think about how do we distribute our water amongst a wide variety of different users. And so from the treatment side, I think as we grow, one of the questions is, is where are we getting this water to support our new growth? And so I think that, you know, one of the things that, you know, I'm not an industrial water worker, so I'm not in the day-to-day of it, but, you know, that water is going to come from your local municipality. And so your local municipality, I foresee, is going to be looking at a lot of more programs to reduce their municipal footprint. I foresee a lot more like rip your strip, you know, xeriscaping, water-wise landscaping activities happening, which means less water going into systems too, you know, if that water has to get, you know, spread out amongst more systems. Um, you know, there's going to be a lot more regional trading I see of water, you know, between, um, you know, systems that can manage it differently. We already see that here in Utah. I mean, we are, a. I, I think the general public turns on their tap, but may not have a, a comprehensive understanding of the fact that most of the water we use on the Wasatch Front is Colorado River Basin water. I mean, we take it all the way across the state through large pipes and reservoirs. And so, as the West really grows, um, we're going to be looking to, one, manage our sources better, but two, much more creative water sharing and much more kind of like creative water sources, quote unquote, through conservation and reuse and other kind of new activities. Would your advice be that the East watch the West because it's coming to a neighborhood by them soon? 
Uh, I think we should all be watching each other because <laughs> I do think there are interesting innovations about, you know, how the East is doing some of their, um, we typically in the West haven't had to deal with these large flooding events in the past, you know, whereas, in, you know, in the West they have the, um, please excuse my ignorance, but the permits that allow you to uh, kind of overflow during storm events. I forgot what those are. The You guys are more used to having kind of like big water events, whereas we here in the West have, you know, traditionally had some monsoonal events, but with climate change, we're seeing really big swings in when and how we get our water. And so I think there's things that we can kind of learn from each other as we're both adapting to change conditions. I mean, nothing's going to look the same regardless of where you live. Tell us about the Utah Water Banking Project. Yes, I'm very excited about this one. So the Utah Water Banking Project should really be called the Utah Statewide Water Marketing Strategies Project. But this is actually the culmination of of really a five-year effort. So I mentioned earlier, you know, here in Utah, we are very into collaborative processes. And so in about 2016, 2017, the state of Utah invested in several large-scale reports to kind of say, hey, what is happening with our law? What is happening with our needs? What What are some things that we can do to be a little bit more flexible in our water? You know, how can we amend the prior appropriation doctrine to kind of meet real needs? And one of the things that we hit upon was this concept of water banking, quote unquote. And what that means was a mystery. <laughs> and so we spent kind of the 2017 through the 2020 process studying water banking projects across the West and also in the state of Utah. And really what that ended up meaning was water leasing. How are people putting surplus water out into the market in a way that those who want water can take advantage of it and it actually results in a wet water transfer from point A to point B. And so we created in 2020 the Utah Water Banking Act, which basically focused on Three key principles, you know, temporary leasing, local. We really wanted this to be something that local people did. It wasn't going to be a state down, you know, top down program. This is something that if you wanted to do it, you could do it. And then um, voluntary. This is just a totally voluntary program. And essentially what we did is we created a way for certain leasing arrangements to apply to the Utah Board of Water Resources to be approved as a Utah water bank. And then if they're approved as a Utah water bank, they were extended certain benefits under the law, like their water rights got protected from forfeiture. They were able to be used for in-stream flow purposes, which at the time in 2020 was pretty novel. We've changed the law since then. And then also kind of um, some streamlined administrative processes. And so that law was put into place in 2020 And then we got about $800,000 in funding from the federal government and the Utah state government to do pilot projects across the state of Utah. And so what we did is we did three pilot projects and then actually ultimately ended up doing a fourth pilot project at the end, kind of testing the Water Banking Act, but more broadly learning like, what does it mean to do water marketing? Like when you say that out loud, like what does that mean? And how can we help water users kind of better organize their thinking about that process? And so what the actual deliverable of this of this effort is, is a statewide water marketing strategy report. And we've got a great website. You can go to water.utah.gov backslash water slash water marketing. And what we've done is based on our conversations with the pilot project participants, we've organized kind of the process to organize a water lease into kind of five key milestones. And those five key milestones 
are people. You know, do you have the right people in the room? Markets, do you have the right balance of supply and demand? And then logistics, can you physically and legally move the water where you want? And then once you've kind of decided those three things, you can kind of move on to, you know, designing a transaction. You know, what are the pricing elements? How are we going to coordinate? Who's going to watch it and monitor it? And then our fifth milestone is approvals, seeking various approvals from the agencies that you need. And so really the statewide water marketing strategies, you know, information is that we've got a whole bunch of videos that kind of like unpack each one of those milestones. And we've got interactive tools, like we've got a series of kind of choose your own adventure questions that walk participants through each of the milestones that talk about really nitty gritty things that we heard our pilot participants ask, you know, like, oh, is there a storage unit in our area where people are storing water in the late season that they may not need that people in the local area could potentially lease? Or is there enough telemetry in our local area to actually physically distribute a water, you know, distribute a water lease? And so, you know, the goal here of this project is to really put a bunch of information out there in the public, and then hopefully they'll pick it up and kind of create little water banks or water leasing arrangements that are really well-suited and tailored to their local needs. Do you see other municipalities outside the state of Utah using this project as a model? I hope so. I mean, we really learned a lot from our sister states, too. So I think that, you know, we're not alone in exploring these topics. For example, the state of Utah has a, actually a pretty similar water banking program. It's a little different in that their um, State Department of Ecology ho- holds the water rights in trust, but they have you know, some really cool water markets that have popped up as well. The state of Idaho, they have both local rental pools and a state-run pool. And so I think you know, what we're doing is very on pace with what some of the other states are doing, but this is just maybe a little bit more water user centric. And that's kind of what we found is that some of the other programs in other states weren't being utilized to their fullest because it was too top down. And so this was really trying to kind of model it on, you know, private irrigation company principles that we apply here in the state. And so we're hoping that this maybe is the magic solution to kind of getting more water marketing going is that we really are focusing like at the very, very local level. Why should everybody have their eyes on the Great Salt Lake right now? The Great Salt Lake is fascinating. So for those folks who are not you know, familiar with the Great Salt Lake. It has received a lot of international press in the last couple of years, but just to kind of paint a big 10,000 foot picture, the Great Salt Lake is a terminal lake. So there is no outflow. And so it basically receives all the water from several tributaries along the Wasatch Front. And it is quite salty. It is, I think, 12 times saltier than the sea in the lower half and even in, in 30 times saltier in the top half. The lake is actually cut in half by a causeway, so it's actually two separate and distinct ecosystems. But the lake is of hemispheric importance. It is an international flyway for birds. You know, if you like to come to Utah and ski, that beautiful Utah snow is is all lake effect snow. You know, the storms from the Pacific come in, they get stuck on the Wasatch, pull up all that water, and then they drop it in snow, which is super fun. I'm a big skier. Um, But then it's also 90% of the water supply. (laughs) And so, you know, the lake in the last couple years, due to a combination of of climate change and drought and, and hot conditions, it's also a shallow lake. So, you know, it has very high evaporative 
conditions and also, you know, human diversions. And there's a lot of us here who are using the same water has basically declined to its lowest levels ever. And so that is really, really a, a big problem because we are reaching such critical salinity levels in the south arm of the lake that there are some threats about the kind of indicator species, the brine flies, the the microbialites that live on the lake, you know, being too salty for them to live. And so when those keystone species, you know, cease to thrive, everything above them does as well. And so we are exceptionally fortunate in that we had one of the largest recorded water years ever in the 2022-2023 winter. And so we got a little bit of breathing room, but um, there is a very real and very acute need to actively and proactively you know, manage the Great Salt Lake to increase those lake levels. What's being done to increase lake levels? So I think that the Great Salt Lake is not only important to watch because it's it's a critical ecosystem to watch in the West, but also, you know, Paul Krugman had a really good article in the New York Times oh, about a year, year and a half ago, where he really said, this is the canary in the coal mine for climate change. He's like, this is really the case test of whether we can get it together as a society to solve hard problems together, because it really is a wicked problem. I mean, we have 10,000 water users who take water from the tributaries to the lake. You know, getting all those people coordinated to bring water to the lake is going to be exceptionally difficult. And so one of the things I think is really important for, you know, watchers of, of the Great Salt Lake to realize is that, you know, in the last four or five years, the state of Utah has made light years worth of work in modernizing their water law to figure out ways and tools to get water to the lake. And it's taken a couple years to get that in place, but we are on the precipice of really having a lot of exciting things happen. For example, one of the things that we did is because the prior appropriation doctrine was built to accommodate you know, 19th century agrarian Utah, letting the water sit in the Great Salt Lake was never considered a beneficial use. And so now we've amended our laws to allow for in-stream flows for water to go to the lake and be used for those purposes. However, just stating in the law that water can be used for that purpose doesn't physically get it there. So we've also made a whole suite of laws and changes to update our distribution systems, you know, how, you know, monitoring, measuring, so that if you wanted to bring water to the lake, you actually know it gets there. The other thing we've done is the state has pumped, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars into ag efficiency projects. And so we are, you know, here in Utah, 70% of our water is used by agriculture. And so we are working hand in hand with our agricultural partners to try and figure out ways to, you know, make those operations as efficient as possible. Because we really want to also keep our agricultural community. You know, the, the solution is not to dry up ag. The solution is to work with ag. The other thing we've been doing is we've been passing, you know, tons of laws about land use and water integration, you know, you know, municipalities having, you know, much stricter laws on, on water-wise conservation, really kind of trying to move the needle on the municipal component. And so, you know, we have a long ways to go, like, don't get me wrong, but I would really like the public to understand that, you know, we have really heard the call and I do think the water user community and the water policy community is has really stepped up to the plate to make big changes. And we're about to, you know, the last couple of years has been, you know, building the bus. <laughs> and I think in 2024, we're really going to start driving the bus. And I, it's just, a, it's just a really exciting time to kind of see what happens. 
As new policy is written, how does our industrial water treatment team work with your legal team to make sure we're getting the best policy out there? That is a really good question because the way I like to describe water to people is that it's kind of like a sweater (laughs) where you pull one thread and something else happens over here. And so, for example... I have Weezer in my head now. Thank you for that. That's okay. Everyone should go home with Weezer. You know, why not? It's fun. Happy Buddy Holly days. So (laughs) a good example for industrial water users is that, you know, the Great Salt Lake is actually a really big beneficiary of effluent, you know. And so, like, for example, the Jordan River that is one of the main tributaries to the Great Salt Lake in August, something like 30 to 50 percent of its flow is from publicly operated water treatment plants. And so, you know, it's been really interesting because on the one hand, we've been having really interesting discussions about reuse and trying to make our water go further. But on the other hand, the more we reuse water, the less water gets back into the natural system. And so it's been this really interesting kind of trying to find the balance of, you know, where is striking the right chord with encouraging reuse because we need our sources to go further, but yet making sure enough wet water flows into the system so as to not further degradate the Great Salt Lake. It's it's complicated. There's a lot of countervailing positions to be had. (laughs) With all the things that you've been talking about that you've been doing over the last few years, what are some of the takeaways that you have? I think the takeaway that I really think is important to kind of get across is that the reality is here in the West, especially in Utah, we are going to ask the public to do a lot of really hard things because these things are hard. There's just no way around it. Water is complicated. It's nuanced. It takes a lot of expertise. It takes a lot of care. And I think that it's for us to actually be successful, you know, we also need public buy-in on it. And so I think that one of the things I really would love, you know, the conversation to kind of move towards is that recognizing that this collaborative ecosystem that we've built around water here in Utah is really working. And it has been working for a long time. And we have very big challenges, which make it seem like it may not be working. But the reality is, is that we are so much stronger when we work together on these problems. And what I really fear is that you know, we're going to start pointing fingers. And when we start pointing fingers, all of our resources get, you know, dragged into litigation, dragged into fighting, where the reality is, is that, you know, we all have to win. And so I just think the biggest takeaway of the last couple of years is, one, I think we've been very successful on this front of working together to modernize our water law, but two, just trying to increase the level of water education, include increase the level of water fluency in the general public, and also kind of just, you know, like a little bit of expectation management and also a little bit of excitement and kind of celebration. Like we're in hard times, but we're also doing hard things. And sometimes you kind of have to stop and take a bigger picture because if you don't do that, you're just going to get bogged down and being negative. And the reality is, is that We just don't have time to do that. You know, we really need to kind of like put our heads down and get to work and honestly be kind of happy warriors. So that would be my my takeaway is that I think we're doing a good job and there's a lot of opportunity to do even better. And I hope that everyone kind of joins us on that journey. I love what you said earlier about that. In water, we either all win or we all lose. 
Well, speaking of winning, I know you're going to do very well with our lightning round questions. Oh, so are you ready to segue over to those? I am ready. All right. So if you had the ability to go back in time and talk to your former self on your first day as a water attorney, what advice would you give yourself? I would give advice that a very good friend of mine gave me about five or six years into my career. And she said, what we do is hard and you should remember that and you should be okay with it. Because I think sometimes we lose track of the fact that what we do is difficult and we signed up for difficult tasks. And we, when we don't see immediate success, that doesn't mean we're failing. It just means we're doing the job. <laughs> what are the last few books that you've read? Oh my gosh, you guys are going to hate me when I say this out loud. I'm actually reread Gone with the Wind. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Nobody assigned it to you? No, I, you know, I read it in high school and I recently had a move and there's been this really interesting public conversation about books and what books we should ban and what books we should keep. And, you know, it was one of these things where I was like, this is kind of part of the American canon. It is sitting on my bookshelf. I'm looking for some light reading. What does it look like to read this with an eyes of a new, per- you know, as a 40 year old woman who's, you know, different and involved and, you know, kind of watching how we think about literature. And it's been really interesting. I've really enjoyed it and also really see why we have some interesting discussions about that book. You know, interestingly, I live in Atlanta. We have the Margaret Mitchell house here. It's a really big deal here in Atlanta. Yeah, I, uh, that's funny. I didn't actually quite realize you were in Atlanta, so that's even more fitting for you. So outside Gone with the Wind, if you were looking for a good water law book, and there have been many, many great water books that have come out in the last couple of years, uh, I think a seminal book to read, actually, I've got two of them, uh, two really seminal books to read would be um, Beyond the 100th Meridian by Wallace Stegner. And I would consider it to be the professional biography of John Wesley Powell. And so John Wesley Powell is typically thought of as the, you know, the the first person to conquer the Grand Canyon. But, you know, he did that when he was 35 and 36. And he had a professional career that spanned until his early 90s. And he created multiple, you know, offices of the Smithsonian. He did all kinds of things. But he was also kind of like the father of the public land survey system and the Western irrigation survey system. And he was just so prescient and understanding how our water resources would work into the future. And he actually recommended that our Western states be designed along watershed lines and not these big boxy states that the federal government was proposing. And so, you know, he really foresaw what the impact would be of all these homesteading acts happening. And so it just is is a fantastic and fascinating book. And then I would say, The other side of the coin of that is also a Wallace Stegner book, but I would read The Angle of Repose because that is more of a fiction book that is actually told from a woman's perspective, but she's the wife of an engineer and they travel all through Silverton and Boise and they talk about water in the mining camps and they talk about water in the canal systems and Boise as they're getting developed. And so it's a really kind of good double feature about actually what was happening versus, you know, a storyline to actually uh, give you some perspective. When Hollywood writes the script about your life, who do you want playing Emily? Oh, God, nobody. That's too, that would be just a, <laughs> that would be a difficult, a difficult. <laughs> Jennifer Lawrence, because she's funny. <laughs> there you go. Final question. If you had the ability to talk to anybody throughout history, who would it be with and why? If I had the ability to talk to anybody throughout history, who would it be with and why? Probably like Georgia O'Keeffe. 
she's really fascinating and has an interesting perspective. She went on long walks. She really thought about things. I think she really saw the world in a way that really kind of captured some of the mystery of the West. And so I really would like to, I think she'd be really fun to talk to. Well, you were really fun to talk to, and I really appreciate you coming on the Scaling Up H2O podcast. I just can't help but say that water touches every single industry, every single job, and I bet people didn't think they were going to tune in today and hear from an attorney, but we learned so much because of that. So thank you for coming on the Scaling Up H2O podcast. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. And if you guys want to learn more about Western Water Law, not to do a plug selfishly, but you know, we do the Ripple Effect podcast specifically just to kind of put cool stories out about Western Water because there's a lot happening out here and it's, it's kind of fun to watch it all progress. We will make sure to link that to our show notes page. And I'm sure just like the Scaling Up H2O podcast, you can find the Ripple Effect anywhere you find podcasts. Nothing said in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. Thank you for listening.